Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. David. Jan. We're going from sex to school. We, or, sex, or should we go to school Are we sex? allowed to associate sex and school? This is a very controversial topic. And I've got a controversy to put to you as well in the book that I have called oh. Captive Prince. And the author, and this is a pseudonym, by the way, um, which adds to that sense of expectation, C.S. Pacat. So welcome, C.S. Thank you. Great to be here. And we can call you Cat. Now, some of the figures about my book, Captive Prince, um, have been quoted in the publicity. 15 million hits online, 5,547 ratings on Goodreads. There are second-hand copies of the first self-published edition uh, available on Amazon for over $500 US. David, I'm guessing at this stage you're talking about a book about sex, not school. I'm talking about a book about sex, but it's an interesting sort of genre in, in terms of the topic. Um, so, Kat, you've got an alternative world. Let's set the background for this book. Uh an alternative world, a fantasy world, the history, landscape, customs. How challenging is it to develop that sort of dominion, domain, what's taking place there? Oh, I think um, all writers have to do what I think of as invisible work. When you write a book, the visible work is the writing on the page. Um, <clears throat> and the invisible work is everything else, the ideas, the world building, the plotting, and so on. And for those authors who create fantasy that feels like it's a tangible part of our own world. J.K. Rowling spent seven years doing the prep work for Harry Potter before she started to write manuscript. Tolkien famously spent 30 years creating Middle Earth before he started to write mm. um, Lord of the Rings. And I think that's because you have to do a lot of work on an idea to make it feel inevitable. So you've got um, new con well, new countries or new dominions via Achelos, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, that's right. And so these sort of kingdoms are in opposition to each other yeah. uh, and the domain. So that's the sort of uh, grand picture. You've also then got the layering inside of that. Um, and uh, if I can just uh, hang on, which section was I going to read? I've lost my, you've made me so excited, I've lost my page. Um, here we have a sort of world, he, he would never get used to the ornamentation. From its arch ceiling to the depression in which lapped the water of the baths, a room was covered in tiny painted tiles, gleaming in blues, greens and gold. All sound was reduced to hollow echoes and curling steam. A series of curved alcoves for dalliance, currently empty, ringed the walls by each of them braziers in, uh, braziers in fantastic shapes. You've so the the detail is there as well, not just the the vast picture, the m sort of minute detail is there. Yeah, as well. there's a lot of research. I was really interested. I'm really interested in like Mediterranean basin region and cultures. Mm. I think fantasy um, coming as it does out of Tolkien is so often a northern European concern, but I wanted to go south and um, explore some kind of culture that we don't necessarily always see portrayed. It's um, quite... Uh, I, I wanted to ground it in the historical where I possibly could. Right. Now, so we've got that backdrop. We now have 
well, the two main characters, Damon as a captive prince, sort of uh, sent into exile as a slave, uh, who is our hero, and his nemesis, Laurent, who, uh, one of the phrases you've used to describe him, Laurent was a nest of scorpions in the body of one person. How much can you tell us about these two men? Um, I love opposing archetypes. I really love that idea of, you know, the Machiavell on the one hand and on the other hand, Alexander cutting through the Gordian knot. Mm -hmm. I think when you have two characters who are deeply um, opposed to each other and opposites, there's a natural narrative tension springs up. How are these characters going to relate? How are they going to be able to work together? And... um, yeah, I'm, I think those forces are very powerful. So we've got this new king, or well, these new kingdoms or alternative kingdoms. We've got these two opposing characters, but now we have the sort of culture and atmosphere of the uh, kingdom of Veer, where uh, Damon is sent. And this is an alternative world, and we're starting to get into the controversy or... Um, well, we're getting into the sex. What, yeah. what is the culture of Veer? Um, I think one of the reasons that um, I used like a kind of a classical Greek culture as a touchstone, and one of the reasons that I did that is that I think we, when we think about ancient Greece, we instinctively understand that they constructed sexuality very differently to the way that we construct it in our own time period. So when we think about that culture, we grasp that While sexual attraction is innate, the way that societies construct sexual identity has changed dramatically, um, and those concepts of sexual identity are not trans-historic. So I I think that there's a hint to the reader that we're going to go through this door into a world where there are perhaps different sexual norms that might be a little bit more homonormative, um, and that, yeah, there's going to be an exploration of sex and of power as well. Well, sex and power, but it's mainly between men. Uh, in this book, yes. In this book. So are, are we saying, because this is the first of a trilogy, yeah. Is do you explore other uh, forms of sex in, in the other volumes? I guess the primary relationship in throughout the trilogy uh, is between two men. Um, and it's quite a homo, there's quite a homoerotic um, sensibility to the books overall. Well, let's just touch on that for a minute. Uh, Laurent's very fine skin when Damon poured water over it was like white pearl. His body under the slick soap was nowhere soft or yielding, but taut like an elegantly sprung bow. Damon supposed that Laurent partook of those refined sports that courtiers sometimes indulged in and which the other participants would allow him, being their prince, to win. He continued from shoulders to lower back. The spill of the water wet his own chest and thighs where it ran in rivulets leaving behind suspended droplets that glimmered and threatened at any moment to trail suddenly downwards. So you've got this sort of homoerotic sense that's there. Mm. Um, How does it differ then from heterosexual erotica? Um, Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think from a writing standpoint, um, one thing that's very different is that um, oftentimes because there's been so little representation, you're writing into new areas. So um, there is both um, an imaginative challenge when you're writing for that reason, but there's also an imaginative um, freedom Um, You can write, say, for example, about power dynamics without um, being constrained by gendered power dynamics, just for example. Mm. I mean, the uh, tension between the two characters is sort of a normal trope, 
um, because it's unfulfilled, so to speak, but there's that suggestion that it will happen. So that would sort of happen in a heterosexual romance. But then, as you say, you've been liberated in writing about this because it hasn't necessarily been written about that often, would you say? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the in the 90s. That was my adolescence. And especially if you're interested in genre fiction, it was literally possible to read every book with queer themes that there was and turn the last page and then just think, well, well I've, I've finished now. Now what do I go on with? Mm. There, um, there haven't necessarily been that many books that um, have allowed an exploration of male sexuality in any way that is not heteronormative. Now, when I was reading this, I mean, something that came across, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, a lot of the, the sex either seemed to be associated with violence or violation. Uh, that's the impression I got. Is that what was intended or...? I'm very interested in extremes. Yeah. And I think um, the fantasy genre deals in extremes. It's probably much better even than realism does. I think... Realist fiction is very good at exploring um, emotions, behaviours within a certain bandwidth, but at the extreme edges of behaviour, things start to seem implausible even though they can be true. And so realism falters as a, a technique or a literary strategy for describing them. Whereas fantasy, you enter the world already understanding oh, everything's going to be a bit implausible, so you're, you're open to accepting extremes and you can then explore them in depth. But... Implausibility or believability yeah. uh, here, we've got uh, this sort of question um, because people have obviously identified with it uh, in terms of the, the numbers that are involved, who are buying your book, who first read it online and such like. So you've touched um, a chord somewhere here. So there is a believability about it. Um, yeah, hopefully there's a an emotional trueness or a sense of a sense of trueness, even if it's within the fantasy genre. Yeah. Well, people are obviously identifying um, with it. Do you think? Or? I think so. I think um, if you're a member of any kind of well, I think there's probably two reasons for that. First of all, if you're a member of any kind of minority, you can feel very hungry for representation, and you know. Um, they say that pop culture is where the pedagogy happens, but it's also where myth-making happens, where we tell stories about ourselves. And um, I think, you know, as well as seeing realist portrayals of your experience, it's important to have those kind of mythic aspirational portrayals. So I think, um, so I think that's one reason that it's appealing to a certain segment of the audience. And I think um, for other readers... Um, especially perhaps for a female readership, it can be quite um, quite interesting and quite uh, enticing to read a book that is about penetrating the male mm. um, because we have a society that's set up that says that penetration happens the other way around. So when we're looking at, at male penetration, it's something that, um, that almost feels counterculture. Well, counterculture, is it voyeurism or from from a female audience or how would you... I guess all reading is voyeurism, right? In truth, <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, vicariously experiencing yeah, what yeah. somebody else is going through. How much of a taboo then is, is all of this? I think it... I Well, yeah, that's interesting. I, I do think that um, male sexuality outside of a very specific set of behaviours... Uh, is still an enormous taboo, and we don't really um, 
get to look at um, a lot of a range of kind of male sexual expression. Certainly male sexual expression that's not heteronormative we almost never see reflected in media or in literature, although time that, that is changing. Hmm. But, but you've also challenged the publishers in many ways, haven't you, in terms of getting them to accept the book? What was the story of the, the book's release and how it became... Oh, gosh, well, this it had a pretty unusual journey to publication. Uh, the book actually began as an online serial, um, and uh, I simply wrote chapters and published them to my fiction blog. The reason that I did that was that when I looked at the world of commercial publishing, there was nothing really like it on bookshelves. There was just nothing like captive prints. Fantasy, you know, for all that word implies, tends to be a fairly conservative genre, and there was no, like, Game of Thrones. Um but there was this online space where people were exploring different modes of storytelling. So it ran as an online serial for about three years. And at the end of three years, I self-published. Um, and when that happened, um, it turned out that there was a market. Um, within 24 hours of the book being published, it was topping number one across categories in Amazon. Um, and uh, there was so much word of mouth on blogs and places like Goodreads that it started to pick up reviews from mainstream review sites. And then I was approached by a New York agent. She said to me, I'd like to represent you. I think we can sell your book to a big six publisher in New York. Um, we had two offers and the most robust of which was from Penguin. So that was how that happened. But you challenged Penguin in some ways because they weren't quite sure how to classify the book, which genre yeah. it belonged to. Um, the interesting thing about the book is that it's being published um, in a, as a different genre in every market that it's being published in. So it's being published worldwide in numerous countries, but there isn't a single country publishing in the same genre as another country. Well, have you invented a new genre? The L <laughs> well, basically, it's been described to me, LGBT um, genre. Uh, is that appropriate or not, do you think? Um, gosh, I almost am not sure if it's up to me to categorise what genre the book is. But I do know that people are having trouble fitting it into existing genres. That's certainly the case. Yeah. Well, it's breaking new ground. Yeah. As you say, it's confronting a number of issues um, which publishers haven't necessarily addressed before. Yeah. And it's sort of a, a, a story or the, the subject matter is coming into uh, a more open or being talked about more openly uh, now uh, than it had been before. Kat, we're actually going to have to end the interview because Jan uh, has her guest to talk about, but the book is Captive Prince. Uh, it's part of a trilogy, the first in the trilogy. Uh, the author, C.S. Pacat, and it's uh, a Viking publication uh, under Penguin. So, Kat, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Well, of course, when did we first wonder about sex? And I think it was when we were a teenager. We've all been there, young adults, adults questioning who we are, how we fit in, finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and starting to have choices and responsibilities. Robert Verlander has created Michael White. Rob, well done. Thank you very much, Jan. Now, we're going to start. We're going to jump right in because I want our, our listeners to get a feel for when this story unfolds. So it's the first two paragraphs, please, Bob. Okay. Man walks on noon was the headline on the newspaper on the floor of my bedroom. Neil Armstrong was in the history books for sure, in there with Christopher Columbus and Captain Cook. The only way I'd get into the papers would be to drown or get run over. 
My mother called out from downstairs, Michael, are you up there? Of course I was, on my back, on my bed, right beneath the life-size poster of Jimi Hendrix. Without waiting for an answer, she yelled, your father's about to start. Before being disturbed, I've been contemplating my existence, or more precisely the lack of it. When would I amount to anything? Your father's about to start. Now, uh, Michael's father is about to read the last will and testament of Michael's grandfather to the extended family gathered downstairs. Now, Robert, what was the surprise in this will? The grandfather was uh, a mercurial old man that most thought was batty, bordering um, bordering on not quite all there, not quite the, the full the full 10 cents. Um, he, he happened to own a very valuable property, which was called the Ballet Shoe Factory, and it was a piece of real estate at, at Williamstown. And they fully expected the, this is the audience assembled, for that to just be split amongst the, uh, all, the, all the relatives assembled. It didn't. It was announced as going to a fellow nobody had heard of called Shady Green, for which the audience then just thought this is just a misguided piece of, uh, uh, of the will which would be thrown over. And in the event that he can't, he can't be found, which everybody thought would be a certainty, it would go to young Michael White. And Michael White wasn't one of the most popular boys or uh, one of the cousins, if you like. So why TikTok, this is um, the nickname for... Uh, Michael's grandfather had this ballet shoe factory and who Shady Green is gives us the story of two other teenagers growing up 50 years earlier and also their problems fitting in. But just a little description from uh, Bob's book about uh, of White and Shady about this a ballet shoe factory, a great 19th century boom time folly with no recognised architectural merit. The chicken pens out the back undermined any pretensions to grandeur. Now, these chicken pens were quite important to Michael and his grandfather. They loved their chooks. Um, they certainly loved their chooks. So TikTok would be out there talking to the chooks and Michael all the time. And this plays into the story in terms of... Um, TikTok telling the bo- Michael when he's a young boy a, a big secret. And so mm. Michael is in possession of uh, information that nobody else is. And so TikTok was quite a storyteller and also quite a writer. What was found under the floorboards at the ballet factory? They found two things. They found, um, they found a diary from the war and they also found uh, the beginnings, uh, the being, uh, beginnings of a story called uh, A Strapper's Tale. So there's two pieces of, uh, of writing here, which, you know, which I draw on as a writer to go and reveal the secret and the mystery over the course of the, um, over the, course of the book. Yeah, we're given bits of these stories as Michael finds time to read them because, you know, he's a busy boy. He's just made a decision to change schools. Now, what was that all about? Uh, Michael is not one of those boys you, you take an instant liking to. So he's sort, of, he's sort of ambitious and he's a bit above his station. And so he... Uh, he, he wants to move from a suburb I call Bovista, mm-hmm. but it really is Altona. But I call it Bovista here because it's not perfectly accurate. I don't want some of my relatives ringing up and saying, you know, Bobby, this is all just complete fiction. I say, well, it is fiction, but yeah. Um, and so he wants to move to a school in, in Essendon. And by doing that, he, he estranges his best friend who thinks he's just a pretentious, um, a pretentious prick, really. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons, too, is he wants to get on uh, all these trams because he wants to meet Miss Dead right. He does. And she appears. It's Vivian. But why doesn't he, yeah. why doesn't he talk to her? Now, th- this boy has many, many things holding him back. One, 
One is including courage. Um, <laughs> what he does have plenty of is, is imagination and a willingness to go and plan everything, which drives uh, people he knows completely nuts in the way in which he'll just go and try and work out the best way he will he will talk to Vivian and he will plot this assiduously and it will invariably fail. Oh, so. yeah, constantly. All the things that happen on two tra- three train rides and, um, and a walk. So... He goes to this new school and, of course, he's pretty weedy, really, isn't he, in comparison to, you know, his best mate, Jerry. And this other guy, I like this, Kenny Rogers, who was such, you know, same age but built so much bigger, who split his school shirt and revealed muscles and tendons I never knew existed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Michael does feel inferior. I mean, his father said to his mother a couple of times that the boy is no Steve McQueen. Um, which you know, which Michael does take offence at, and does various things to go and and improve his situation, including you know, tr- you know, lying in front of a sun, sun lamp for extended periods <laughs> and giving himself this very goggled-eyed look. So he does he does work on his appearance, but not not that successfully. No. So he's got new friends at this new school. Oh, new friends! Maybe they're just private school bullies. And you've got a lovely description of one of them, John Carlson. Oh, and you and and I I think you've written it so well that you might have known somebody like this. I did know someone like John Carson. <laughs> I have given I mean, John was his first name, but there's plenty of Johns around, right? And and he would he would sum up uh, an individual with a name. So in this in this book, because Michael was spelt M I C H E L, he thought Michael was um, was French, and so all he would call him was. Uh, was Froggy or, or or Charles in terms of Charles de Gaulle? He would never call Michael White by by his actual name, and invariably at the tuck shop, which Michael would be serving at, kids would come up to to the counter and, and you know and put their arm inside their <laughs> jacket as like Napoleonically. So they hadn't even got the right <laughs> no, no. <laughs> character. But they, it was French, but it wasn't Charles de Gaulle, and didn't really know. Well, of course, you know these these uh, new friends, the, um, the private school ones, uh, wanted to come over and see. Both Vista and commented, do we need a passport to come where you live? Mm. But one of these things that always happens with a group of teenagers, an underage party. That's where uh, they all get together, the new friends, the old friends. um, And Michael had the unknown combination of spumanti, Southern Comfort and Viscount cigarettes. Now, it led to Michael finding out, no, that he was not homophobic, he was hemophobic. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, you can't take a trick. Um, certainly, you can't, you can't take a trick. So um, not not only does he see he, the, the prospective love of his life, Vivian and Pashy on down the side of a garage with uh, with, with um, a member of a bikey gang, but... Um, but he also um, he suffers from the fact that was his one big opportunity and it all, it all falls away. Mm. Um, now, what of Shady Green? Was he real? What was Shady and TikTok hiding from? Why were they living in the network of drains and tunnels that ran beneath the leafy boulevards of Williamstown? And then they went up to Brisbane. Look, we're not going to answer that because that's, that's the, what the stories are all, all about. Yeah. But we do need to know how Shady Green became attached to the ballet factory. Okay, beneath Williamstown in, in, in those days, and, well, and I'm sure it'd be the case now. You could actually walk into these drains; they're almost um, almost head height. And if you wanted to, you could walk from Williamstown pretty much to, to, to the Flemington races. If you wanted, if you're game enough, 
um, you could actually walk from Williamstown to Footscray. This sounds like something you might have done yourself. There. I did. I, I mean, I, I can't say I actually went into the races, but we have walked uh, extensive distances in the drains. Okay, so so we've got the drains. Oh, no, no, Shady. How did he end up there? Shady went there because he was escaping from a stepfather who was full of drink one day, and that was where he uh, ran off to. Yeah. Um, and I, I think he originally discovers that when he's fleeing, um, fleeing the ballet shoe factory, which was um, a building, a much larger building than the one I used to live, live opposite in North Fitzroy, which is was called a ballet shoe manufacturer, but this one's become much bigger. Mm. But he went there as a place of hiding, um, and it, that becomes relevant to the story later on in terms of um, the secret yeah. and, and why they're all down there, why does, you know... So, Michael, young kid, 16-year-old, has got this incredible ballet shoe factory looking fantastic and then he decides, well, you know, all the relatives are on to him to sell it, you know, demolish it, carve up the land. But he decides to put it into use and this is where he gets in contact with Howard Starr. He does. Howard Starr is, is, is one of those peculiar figures you would see at universities 25, 30 years ago in which they would go and... Uh, effectively try and break up protests and effectively act on behalf of the political machine of uh, of universities. But anyway, he was um, he, he, he becomes an empresario, and so Michael believes you can turn the ballet shoe factory into something like a performing arts factory. As you know from reading the book, it sort of doesn't even get that far. <laughs> it gets overwhelmed by events, but that's in his in his in his mind is where he's going to end up. And and what show does Michael Star? Oh, sorry, Howard Star want to put on? He wants to put on cabaret, but, but in the end, they put on a version of Hair. Hair the ballet. Now, if we all know hair, we also know there's a touch of nudity about. So we've got disgruntled relations, family relations, wanting the the ballet factory demolished. We've got nudity, well, body stockings and cod pieces in the ballet factory. And but then we have to work out what was more shocking. Was it (laughs) Michael Dad's blue safari suit? Oh, it was a book of time. There's police raids and explosive conclusion. But what of Shady Green? Look, it was really a most entertaining read. Thank you, Jan. Now, it's where can people get this book? As of today, Jan, and this, oh. is, this is breaking news, I've got to say, we've got readings in Carlton, Hawthorne and Malvern. And it's and being a, a Sydney-based writer. It's at Leslie Mackay's uh, in Wallara, and look, of course all the uh, the online stuff as well. Yeah. Um, look, the the thing about this book, I think it'll make a fantastic read for a teenager, especially a boy teenager, you know, grappling with with um, identity problems. Do you know Robert Helpman's line about dancing in the nude? He had no objection to it, except not everything stopped when the music stopped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just... I tell you, we've had a lot of oh, things moving around. On we're going to have to be moved to a later hour <laughs> if we're going to talk about sex all the time. It's a bit of a worry. Yes. So I hope we, hopefully we haven't offended too many people out there today. I Well, hopefully they've been so interested in the, in the books we're talking about. Actually, I have another question for Kat, uh, just while we've got a moment. Yeah, now that shoot. it's in... Now that it's in hard copy, yeah. uh, is it still available online? As in, you, you said it was part of a blog. 
etc. Has that have you had to sort of close that down? Oh, I've had to close that down. Yeah, Penguin did ask that the free version be taken down after they they um, bought the rights to the book, but um, it's certainly available in bookstores and um, as an ebook as well if you prefer to read on a. An on, e-reader. An e-reader and such like. Just talking about covers, I look at Kat's book and it looks so innocent. You, you just sort of don't <laughs> think that there's going to be all of this inside Kat, it. Kat, tell us about then the golden chain. What, oh. Because there's, there's, a, mm. there's a, a sort of crown yeah, I reckon it of a chain. Of but but Robert what, Helpman what's happening with these? <laughs> what's happening with these chains? Kat? Right. There's. A, I guess there's a lot of inherent symbolism in a golden chain. Perhaps it's a circlet for a head or a collar for a neck. We, you know. But mm. but some of the captives, uh, captive men, are led about on chains. They're pets, so to speak. So to speak. So to speak. Yeah. So <laughs> chains have a broader significance. Well, I want to talk about a much more <laughs> interesting <laughs> cover of White and Shady is the book that I've been speaking with Robert Verlander about. And Williamstown, if you've got anything to do with Williamstown, if you've got anything to do with young guys, teenage boys, fabulous read. would be able to recognise it. Well, that brings us to an end for this week. So my book was Captive Prince, part of a, a trilogy, the Captive Prince trilogy by C.S. Pacat, Viking and Penguin. And yours? Robert Verlanders of White and Shady. And so hopefully next week we'll have something more moderate.